Well, again, good morning, church. Hey, uh, this morning, we are going to be finishing off a series we started a few weeks ago um, that we're calling Koinonia. Um, Koinonia is uh, a Greek word that's used in the New Testament quite a bit, and it has a, a dual meaning to it. Um, the, the first word that was used to describe the church body, the body of Christ, was the word koinonia. And koinonia uh, simply means fellowship or communion. Um, there's another meaning. The Bible uses that word again for something else. They, the Bible uses uh, the word koinonia to talk about the table. The table is um, a koinonia moment in the Bible. And so those two kinds of koinonia is the koinonia, the body of Christ, and the koinonia, this thing, this sacrament, this thing we do at the table, those two things are um, deeply related to each other. When we come to the table, we take the elements together. Um, that koinonia makes us into the koinonia of Christ, the church in a sense. And so we've been talking about communion quite a bit the last few weeks. Um, and there's really three tenses to communion. There's three ways that people have uh, understood it that scripture bears out. And the one is uh, the past tense, in a sense. Uh, communion, when we come to the table, there's this past sense nature to it. There's this remembrance thing that happens. When we come to the table, we remember that, that we are a part of a larger story than ourselves. We remember the cross. We remember what Jesus did for us. And then there's this, this present tense nature to communion as well, where when we come to the table together and we take the bread and we take the cup, uh, something happens and, and the body of Christ comes together and there's this fellowship, there's this community that happens at the table that doesn't really happen in other places. And, and to kind of further that present tense, there's also this moment in communion where we get to spend time with our Creator. We, we get to spend time with Jesus, our Savior, in a space, in a place, in a moment that we don't really regularly get to do. Now we've talked about those two tenses for the last couple weeks. Today we're going to talk about the other one, and that is when we come to the table, there's this future tense thing that happens when we come to the table. There's this future tense. There's this hope that happens when we come to the table. When we come to take communion together, there is this look ahead at what God is about to do. God started something at the cross. He started a renovation project on his creation. He's going to make creation new again. And when we come to the table and take communion, we actually get a glimpse, a glimmer of what that future is going to look like. Now, if that's all confusing to you, we're going to talk about that this morning. Um, and we're going to talk about that by diving into our scripture. Our scripture reading this morning is John 6, 22 through 35. If you have a Bible, I would recommend you turn there. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning and you'd like to follow along, and I recommend you do, um, in the back of the room there and then in front of the doors back there, um, there are Bibles for you as well. So the scripture reading is John 6, uh, 22 through uh, 35. We're also going to add an extra verse in there, and it's going to be Revelation 19.9. So if you want to hold on to both of those in your Bible, you can. Our scripture reader this morning is none other than the Ron Miller. It's pretty exciting. Um, so Ron, I'm going to invite you up to, uh, to read for us. And what we do when we read scripture is we stand, we face the center of the room where the scripture is read to highlight just how central this book is. It's the true story of the good news of Jesus. So Ron, when you're ready. From John 6. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, 
and that Jesus had not entered into it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So let's leap into the future. Revelation 19.9. Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, and he added, these are the true words of God. Thank you, Ron. You all may be seated. <clears throat> now, often when we approach the scriptures, the Bible, um, we see it as a book of information. In some sense, we see it as a book that provides us a way to live. It provides us a good set of ethics, things like that. We also see it as a story, right? The scriptures are a story. And in this book, there's all kinds of genres that go along with this story as well. If you are in the beginning of the Bible, you get to Genesis 1, the creation story. And many scholars would argue that the creation story was actually written in the form of poetry. It's a poem, the creation story is. It's a genre. Um, then you turn to the middle of your Bible, you get to the Proverbs, and the Proverbs are written in the genre of wisdom literature. It's a kind of wisdom, these short, pithy statements that say something very important about each and every one of our lives. Then you get to the New Testament, and the New Testament's filled with these letters and these epistles, another genre of scripture, a genre of story, in a sense, and we learn a lot there as well. But did you know that there's another genre in the scriptures, and that is comedy. Did you know that? The genre of comedy is found in this book. And to some of us, we're like, how dare you? You're not allowed to say that. You don't laugh when you read the Bible. But you, you're actually supposed to sometimes. Did you know the book of Jonah, the story of this prophet that God calls to go do this thing, and then he doesn't do that thing, and he ends up in the belly of a fish, that story 
was actually written um, in such a way that the original readers would laugh their way through the story. It's definitely true, but they would laugh their way through the story as well. There's humor involved in the story. Now, I say all this because our scripture reading this morning from John, I think, was written with, with a way of making us laugh. Uh, the original readers, when they would have read this story out of the book of John, I bet they would have got a laugh out of it. Because when you kind of dive into it, you see that there's some things that are just kind of funny in the story. I want to show you this a second. If you have your Bibles, open them back up to John 6, 22 through 35. I want to walk you through this a second. Now, our scripture reading is actually found um, amidst a bigger story, a bigger narrative chunk in the Gospel of John. If you look back just uh, a, a couple verses or pages, you will see at the beginning of John 6 the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's a story that many of us know. And what Jesus does is he um, is teaching to this crowd of 5,000 plus people. Could be more than that. And as he's teaching to them, he realizes that these people, they've been there all day. They must be hungry. And so Jesus says, we need to feed them. And so he takes five small loaves of barley bread and he takes two fish and he uh, sends his disciples around with these baskets to hand out the food to 5,000 people. And of course, we know the story, right? The baskets come back and they're full. There's pieces all over the place. There's more food in the baskets uh, when they're done than when they started. It's this pretty amazing miracle that Jesus does. And then after this moment where Jesus does this miracle, he disappears. He, he goes into hiding. He gets away from this crowd that he had just fed all this bread and all this fish. And then in the, at, when it gets dark and the sun goes down, the disciples and Jesus, they hop in a boat on the Sea of Galilee and they speed off to Capernaum where Jesus can continue his ministry. Now it's right here in this part of the story where our scripture reading picks up. You see, the people that had just been fed the loaves and the fish, they look around and they can't find Jesus. Where in the world did Jesus go? It's like, where's Waldo or something? With Jesus, except. Um, that's not a funny joke. But, so Jesus is off in Capernaum and the crowd says, the, uh, Jesus must have gotten to a boat. And so this crowd gets in a boat and they head to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum where Jesus is. And they find Jesus there. And Jesus in the, is in the middle of Capernaum continuing his ministry. And suddenly this crowd from the feeding of the 5,000 finds Jesus. Now if you take a look at uh, verses 25 through 27 in our scripture reading, you see what happens next. Listen to this. When they found him, this crowd, on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You see, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and it's an incredible miracle. In the ancient world, this is like an overly incredible miracle. Because in the ancient world, Food was a precious commodity in a way that we don't sense today. Many folks in the ancient world could not afford food to eat. They would work all day long 
every single day of the week, and they would do that simply to be able to afford enough food and shelter to support their families and to support themselves. And that was like the middle class in this day and age. Then there was this other class, this lower class. And this lower class of people, they didn't have jobs. They didn't have careers. They didn't have money in the bank account. They had nothing. And in the scriptures, um, people in the ancient world referred to them as outcasts and sinners and the poor, like all these kind of negative terms. And these people, this certain strata people, they didn't have any food to eat. It was really hard for them just to survive another day. And so you get to the feeding of the 5,000, and Jesus makes free food appear. And in the ancient world, that's a really big deal because people look and they see these baskets full of food and they think Jesus just put on a buffet for us. This is awesome. I can eat as much as I want to eat. And so they head off after Jesus disappears and they go to find him because they want him to do it again. And so they find Jesus and say, hey, you want to like put the buffet on again? We're ready to eat. It's lunchtime. Let's do this. And then you look in verse 27 of our scripture reading. This is what Jesus says. He says, this is a great teaching moment for the crowd. Jesus says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Basically, Jesus says, the food you ate when we did that massive you know, feeding of the 5,000 thing, that thing, that's great. You got to fill your tummies. That's a good thing, right? We're full. We like being full. We don't want any hangry people in the audience, right? It's a big deal. But there is something bigger going on here, crowds. There's something bigger going on. It's bigger than a full stomach that's going on. And I want to give you that something bigger. I want to give you that something bigger. It's this amazing teaching moment for Jesus. And so the crowd comes back to Jesus and it's when they speak back to Jesus in this narrative where I think that people in, like, the original readers would probably have laughed out loud. This is in verse 30 um, of our scripture reading, if you want to turn there with me a second. So the crowd asks him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, in our ancient eyes and ears, this doesn't seem all that funny to us, right? But basically, the crowd does this. They say, okay, Jesus doesn't want to put on the buffet line anymore, okay? He wants to give us the spiritual heavenly manna food. That's cool. That's great. Uh, we're, we're happy for that. But we want lunch. Like, we want to eat. So what can we do to get Jesus to make us a big, giant meal that never, you know, disappears, that we can fill our stomachs? And they say, hey, Jesus, you remember that story <clears throat> with Moses? where Moses proved that he was like God's guy and he did so by dropping the manna from heaven. You remember that, Jesus? Like, I bet you couldn't do that. You know, like that's kind of the, I bet you couldn't do that, Jesus. And I think it's this part of the story that people probably laugh because the people just don't get it and they will do whatever they can. They will manipulate in any way they can to get a free lunch. Some of us are like, I might do that right now. I'm hungry. We don't know. Um, you see, it's amazing to me that this crowd of people 
that had just experienced a miracle where Jesus fed 5,000 with virtually no food. It's amazing to me that the crowd couldn't see past their stomachs and see what was really going on. That the God of the universe in Jesus was using his power in the world for a bigger purpose than simply putting on the buffet line, right? They couldn't see it. It's amazing. Now, here's the thing. We could, th- we could read this story and we could think about this crowd and we could say, well, they're the bad guys, the dummies. What are they thinking? Of course, like it's Jesus. They should have known better. It's not about food. It's about so much more with Jesus. How could they have possibly missed this? Come on, right? We could do that. We could be judgmental. But here's the thing. For those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus, don't we do the exact same thing with Jesus all the time? We try to get Jesus to give us the things that we want all the time, don't we? We want Jesus to give us the bread from heaven, like our scripture passage says, except our pantries are full, right? Like, we don't need bread from heaven. We want other things, right? We want other things that we think will fill us up and make us happy. In our day and age, it might look like, I don't know, it might look like power or influence or control or a, a, a new career or a promotion or a bigger house or to be young again or it could be all sorts of things and we ask Jesus for these things over and over and over again and we want Jesus to give us those things and we know we know that Jesus can if Jesus wants to and so we keep asking and asking and asking and we believe That if God were to give us those things, whatever those things are that are on our bucket lists, um, then we would arrive in life. If God were to give us all the things that we really feel like we need for ourselves, man, wouldn't life finally be perfect? It'd be the way, you know, we want it to be. It'd be great. It'd be utopia in the Magic Valley, right? It'd be wonderful if God would just act and give us all the things that we want. If God... Well, just give me that promotion. Man, life would be good. If God would heal me from that disease or that sickness or whatever it is, man, then life would be great. If God would repair my marriage that's just crumbling and falling apart, man, if God would heal that, if God would act and use his powers to, to fix that, man, life would finally be great. And so our prayer lives, and we've talked about this, right? Our prayer lives turn into this long list of requests. We ask God to do things for other people. We ask God to do things for us because we think if we get all those things, then we will have arrived. Life will finally be better or good or whatever language we want to use to talk about that. But here's the thing. All of those things that we tend to want and long for in our lives, they're band-aids. They're temporary. God could feed the crowd and they would have full bellies and they'd come back four hours later and say, I'm hungry again. Can you feed me again? You know, we may get healing today, like our bodies may be sick and we could get the healing that we so long for right now in this moment, but we know that there is an expiration day on our lives and we will die eventually. Disease or no disease, we will die. We will not be cured. We may get that promotion today or that pay raise or that new job or whatever it is. We may get it finally. God will give it to us in six months, 
in a year, in two years, we'll start looking on, oh, this job didn't really fill me like I thought it would. This, there's another rung on the ladder. Maybe I want that next rung on the ladder, right? If God would just fix my marriage and just put the pieces back together, oh man, it'd be so great. But we know that there's going to be a moment in our marriage where one person dies, one spouse dies, and the marriage is going to be over eventually anyway. Isn't it? It's going to happen. It's why in verse 35, if you look at your scripture reading, Jesus has to say this. He has to get real blunt with the crowds. Then Jesus declared, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that we all have this hunger and this thirst. We all have this longing. We all have this something in us that says that there's supposed to be something more, that life is supposed to be better than this, that we're supposed to achieve greatness. We all have this thing inside of us There's where we crave, we hunger, we long for something. And Jesus says that longing that you experience, you should be experiencing that longing in your life. We should be experiencing this idea that there is this grass and then it's greener on the other side. We should actually experience this. Because if we have faith, we know that there actually is a world where the grass is greener on the other side. We call that heaven most of the time, right? Longing is the way God wants us to feel right now. But it's not longing for a bigger house or a nicer car or an extravagant vacation or all the long list of things that we have. You see, Jesus says that all the longing we have in our lives, if you were to just peel it back layer by layer, what you would see underneath that is truly is a longing for simply Jesus. All longing underneath is a longing for Jesus. Jesus is the place where all of our longing and our hunger and our thirst belongs. We may look and long for a vacation, and some of you are like, amen, brother, we want vacation. Deep down, that longing for a vacation, really what we're longing for is rest in Jesus. That's really what that longing is. We may long for a new job or a promotion or a raise or whatever it is in your workplace. Deep down, what you're really longing for, you're longing for peace in Jesus. That's what you're longing for. We may long for healing, for something that's wrong with our bodies or our minds or whatever it may be. Deep down, that longing, underneath that longing for healing is a longing for salvation, that God would permanently save you. That's the longing underneath. See, all of our longing is actually a longing for Jesus. And it's, and it's more than that. All of our longing is that 
Jesus actually be with us and dwell with us and be with us and tabernacle with us. All of our longing is that the world right now in this moment that Jesus would actually be king over this world and he would rule justly and the world would be the way it's supposed to be. All of our longing at the end of the day is truly a longing for heaven. That's what we long for. Where all is made right where anxiety turns to peace, where turmoil turns to rest, where death turns to life, where Jesus reigns over all things in our lives and this world and all creation that Jesus reigns and reigns justly. And none of us will ever stop longing until the day when we look out and we look in the clouds and we see Jesus coming back to this earth. That is when the longing will finally end. And that means that right now, in this very room, this very moment, in each and every one of us, we are all longing for something. The question is, what is it? What has your mind been fixed on these days? What are you longing for? What are you hoping for? What is it? What is it? See, deep down, Whatever it is, deep down that longing is for heaven. That's what we're aiming for in our lives, whether we realize it or not. See, Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be thirsty. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You see, Jesus says, feast on me and all those heavenly things that you long for, when you t pay attention, you dig down, all those things, you can taste them right here, right now. Just a glimmer of it, you can taste heaven right now. Revelation 19.9, if you want to turn there a second in your Bible. It's exactly what the Apostle John writes. Says, he writes the Gospel of John and he writes Revelation. He says in 19.9, then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. You see, communion, when we come to this table, this space, when we take the cup and we take the bread and we eat and we drink, we are getting a glimpse and we're being transported into the wedding supper of the Lamb. We're getting a taste of heaven when we come to this table. Communion, the Lord's Supper, is a moment where we get to sit at the table and we get to feast on Jesus and we will never be hungry and we will never be thirsty again. The table is where we get to see and we get to touch and we get to taste Christ's body. And in so doing, we get a glimpse of what heaven is actually going to be like. That all happens at the table where we will no longer be hungry, where we will no longer thirst. Communion is a moment where we get transported to heaven for a minute and we get to experience what that's going to be like, where there's no more longing, where we are completely fulfilled, where everything is right. And maybe it's just at the table for just a second, but that's what happens. What are you longing for? 
today, in this moment? What are you longing for? And when you dig down, what, what is it about heaven that you're longing for right now? In what ways are you hungry or thirsty? See, at the table this morning, God wants you to see and taste and touch heaven. That's what he wants for you. You know, throughout this series, the last few weeks, we've been taking communion each week and we've been taking it in uh, different ways. Um, and we'll be taking communion again today. And every week we've been taking communion differently. And the way we're going to take it today is we're going to take communion with our eyes firmly set on this idea of hope. A hope for heaven. And so we're going to do something a little old school, which I love. What we're going to do is we're going to have the elders come forward and sit down and they're going to pass the plates exactly as we're seated. There's a reason we want to do this. We, we want to do it like this this morning because when Jesus fed the 5,000, that's exactly what Jesus did. He sent the disciples out to the crowd who were seated and they passed the baskets around and Jesus fed them exactly where they were seated. So elders, I'm going to invite you to come up here. Um, come on forward. And as I come up, you know, I want you to imagine that moment of the story where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Imagine that you're one of them and imagine that your stomach is full in that moment as you take the elements this morning. Imagine there's a moment where there's enough for everybody. And so what's going to happen is the elders are going to pass out the bread and the cup. And then after it's all passed out, I'll come back up here and we'll, we'll eat and we'll drink together. And as the trays go around this morning, I invite you to just take a moment of reflection and get in touch with yourself. What is it that you're longing for this morning? And how is that really just your longing for heaven? And as you eat and as you drink this morning, Ask God to give you just a taste of all your longing fulfilled in him. Amen? Communion is a taste of heaven. So let's come to the table. Let's pray first. Jesus, we thank you for this meal that we're about to have Jesus, we realize that we're no different from the crowd. We want to be filled. We want to be full. And we're doing anything we can to fill ourselves up, God. But the true way to stay full, God, is only in you. To feast on your presence, to be with you, to have you rule, God. The end of all of our longing is heaven. And so this morning, God, as we meet you at the table... We boldly ask, give us that taste of heaven. Give us that taste where we don't feel like we need more, where everything's okay, where everything's right. Just a taste of that this morning, God. And so God, send your spirit among us. Be with us. Join us at the table. Join us in the bread and the cup. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord raise his countenance upon you and give you peace.
Amen, church?